Good morning, Hallmark. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, good, good. All right. Well, thank you so much again, as we said before, for worshiping with us this morning, whether you are online or you are in person. Thank you so much for making Hallmark a part of your weekend. If you do not know who I am, my name is Carlos. Uh, not only do I get the privilege to be the student pastor here and work with our middle school and high schoolers, uh, but I also get the opportunity to continue in our series, uh, Path, uh, Pur Pathway to Purpose, through the book of Esther. Hopefully that's not an omen for things to come, all right? <laughs> Uh, but I'm excited as we've uh, kind of learned through this book uh, over these last few weeks is that uh, this is the only book in the Bible where the name of God isn't mentioned. And, and that's very intriguing to, for it to be in the Bible, but it, it's something that as we've learned through these last few weeks, God is in the book. God is orchestrating things. God has his fingerprints all over this book. And we're able to see God's sovereignty and God at work. We've already seen that Esther has discovered that she's been put in a place in the kingdom as the queen of this kingdom. Not, not for personal benefits, but for a spiritual purpose. That she's been put in here for a reason. So let's kind of, kind of catch up, all right, to chapter, uh, the end of chapter 6. So we're going to kind of do like Wikipedia, okay? We're going to kind of catch up through what's going on, all right? So Mordecai, Esther's cousin, has, been, uh, has told her that she's been placed in the kingdom, as he quoted, for such a time as this, okay? She... Uh, is aware, and everyone's aware, of Haman's plan to eradicate the Jews. And she plans on telling the king about Haman's evil plan of killing them. She prepares a dinner for the king and invites Haman to come, the architect of this genocide, and she is ready to tell the king about this. And she comes to the king, and the king says, what's your request to me? And Esther goes, my request, my petition is, I know she got weak, is, is to invite you to another banquet. And, and we, we, we find that kind of odd, but as we learned last week, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, Esther exercises patience in trusting God's timing, not her own. She knew that there was something bigger. And so she paused and was patient to see God's timing and not her own. So she invites him back for another banquet, all right? Kind of like that queen, right? We're going to have one banquet today and come back tomorrow. We'll have another one, okay? So, so she has another banquet. Haman goes home. He's kind of frustrated, right? He, he's getting ready for this plan to come. He, he's frustrated. And he goes home to his wife and his friends. 
And in this, his wife and all of his friends kind of give him a bright idea. Hey, how about you, you, you make some gallows? How about you kill Mordecai? And he goes, man, that's, that's a great idea. Let, let, me, let me get together, build some gallows so that I can kill Mordecai tomorrow. Now in this, this pause, the king goes to bed. He can't sleep. He, he's tossing, he's turning. He, he can't get to sleep, so he asks his servants to bring him a book, a boring book, and read him a boring story so that, like many of us, when we can't go to sleep, that, that something would put us to sleep so this boring book And it just so happens that the story that they read to the king is the story of Mordecai. Now, again, it just so happens. We know this isn't coincidence. We know this isn't by accident. This is God orchestrating everything that's going on. As we said last week, God is at work even when sin looks unstoppable. God is at work. So the story that they read to the king is the story of Mordecai, which we got to read in Esther chapter 2. And he reads this, and he hears this story, and he goes and asks his servants, what did we do to that, that guy that saved my life? How do, how do we honor him? And the servants are like, oh, 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 no, king, we, 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 didn't, we didn't honor him. We didn't do anything for him. So what should we do? And as he's saying this, just so happens, Haman comes in. And he goes, Haman, what should we do to the man that saved the life of a king, that saved the life of the king? Haman, being Haman, thought he was talking, that the king was talking about himself. And looking for another opportunity to promote himself, he, got, he said, you know what we should do to this man? We should honor him. We should make him second in command. We should make him the, the second in command, the heir to the throne, king. And the king goes... I like it. That's a great idea, man. Hey, Haman, you know what? Why don't you go get Mordecai? Why don't you go get Mordecai and let's honor him? Put him on a horse and let's parade him through the streets and celebrate him. Probably, not probably, not what Haman was thinking. So his, his enemy, Haman's enemy, is now made to be paraded around the streets and celebrated, led by Haman. I'm a Jets fan, and I've never felt this type of depression. <laughs> Listen to what it says. <laughs> Listen to what it says in chapter 6. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off home, mournful and with his head covered. 
This is not what he had planned. But again, it just so happens, right? Just coincidence. It just so happens that during this pause of Esther, which produced a delay, which produced the wife's idea to build the gallows, which produced Haman to build the gallows for Mordecai, which produced a sleepless king, which produced the king being read the story, story of Mordecai, which produced Mordecai asking Haman, not mentioning Mordecai's name, which produced Mordecai being elevated and celebrated. God himself, the puppet master, pulling the strings to make sure his purpose and his will comes through. So, Haman goes home, mournful, depressed. Verse 13, Haman told his wife, Ziresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you, have begun, um, and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with, with him, the king's eunuchs or servants arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So Haman goes home depressed to a lovely wife that encourages him and says, your downfall is certain. <laughs> Sorry, hon. It's all downhill from here. Gosh, what a lucky man. All right? And as he hears this, I, again, I, I want you to see God's timing through this all. Because... It says that even while they were having this conversation, verse 14, the king's eunuchs, the king's servants come and rush him to the banquet. Now, as a former liar and schemer back in my teen years, I think this is important because Haman did not have time to scheme another plan. He didn't have time to come up with some elaborate scheme to make sure there was a downfall of Mordecai and the Jews. Didn't have time for that. And I say that from personal experience because I know, well, when I was in elementary school, middle school, and high school, and I know that I knew that my teacher, principal, was calling mom and dad, I knew I had some time to come up with a plan. An excuse. Some of my parents in here are maybe not amening out loud, but you, <laughs> you, you know, you're doing it in your head. There was no time for Haman to come up with a scheme. And as we read Esther chapter 7, this is kind of when the soundtrack of the story changes. Because now we're going to see God and God at work even more. So Esther chapter 7, it says, The king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even 
to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. And if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would not have kept, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burning the king. King Azuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified because the king and queen, before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I, while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, a servant said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They'd hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Whew. A lot happens in these 10 verses. The king again asks Esther, what is your request? What do you want from me? To the point where he's willing to give half of the kingdom to her. And she just says, to save my life and save the life of my people. For we have been sold to destruction, to death, extermination. And as the king hears this, his response who wants to kill my wife? Who wants to kill her people? And Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is the evil Haman. Man, again, I, I, I'm known to have thick skin. Not a lot of things get to me. You can talk about my jets. You can talk about... Um, Perhaps my hobbies, you can talk about my personality, you can talk a lot about me. You mess with my wife, where's she at? Sorry, sorry, she stoned me off. Oh gosh, I practice this that she always sits here. Okay, all right, my wife. You can talk a lot about me, but man, you mentioned my wife. You talk about my wife something. 
It's in me. Just like many of our men in here. Man, you talk about someone close to, to you, gets a little personal, right? In a sense, sometimes gloves come off. So imagine the king, the most powerful person in the land. Someone wants to get rid of your wife. Who is he? Where is he? And it just so happens, Haman's at the banquet. And it says that he storms off. Maybe he just needed some fresh air. Or maybe he just needed to calm himself from his anger. Or maybe he already knew what was going to happen to Haman. He just needed to, to, to think of a punishment for Haman. Or maybe he was just thinking about or pondering Esther's dilemma. But either way, he leaves. And when he leaves, Haman knows that he's in trouble. Again, maybe not so much now, but when you were a kid, you knew when you were in trouble. You sensed it, right? Mom walked into the house. <laughs> Dad walked in or pulled up to the driveway. Or you got the look. Or you got the, the middle name, right? When you got the full... So again, you know that feeling. Haman knows he's in trouble. And he thinks to go to Esther and plead for mercy. Beg for mercy. Please don't let him kill me. But in approaching her, it says that he falls onto the couch where she's reclining. And at that moment, just so happens, the king comes back. First you want to kill my wife. Now you want to, as he says, violate her, assault her. No, 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 no. And it says that as he speaks, as he makes his statement, his servants take him away, cover his head. God is so particular that he will create an impression Haman was just going there to beg for his life, nothing more. But God is so particular that he will make something look like it's not so that his purpose will be accomplished. And even in this, God is in control. And one of the king's servants is aware of the newly constructed gallows by Haman. And in verse 8, before again Haman could explain himself, before Haman could make an excuse, before Haman could scheme a plan, he is taken away. And the servant says, hey, there's some gallows that he built. There's some gallows that he built to kill Mordecai, the guy that you just celebrated yesterday. What a difference a day makes, right? God delayed Esther from telling the king to give Haman time to build the gallows meant for Mordecai. That in order that he might actually dig his own grave per se. 
God moves suddenly on his enemies. And when God moves suddenly and quickly, his will will be done. And it feels so good when it's on our behalf, correct? When the enemies are plotting against us and we see God move. See, because life can appear to be desperate at times, hopeless, yet God is able, God is able to turn things around suddenly. He's able to turn things around in no time. He's always at work even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it. Now, I stand before you as a product of God's grace in my life. Because statistically, I should not be here. Statistically, I should not have the life that I have today. If you don't know much about me or my story, I was born out of wedlock to my mom and dad in Guatemala a third world country. My dad was out of the picture when I was two and a half years old. Really don't have any recollection of my real dad until probably when I was about seven or eight. My mom and I moved to America to pursue the American dream when I was about nine. We moved to New York City and grew up in Queens, New York my whole life. In probably some not very nice neighborhoods did things that probably should not be here. But as I look at God's hand in my life, I had the opportunity to go to college. I was the first one in my family to do that. I was the first one in my family to graduate college. I was the first one in my family to get married and then have a kid. I'm one of the few in my family that's still married to my first wife, hopefully my only one. <laughs> I say all of that not, not to pat myself on the back, not to, to show you how good I am. I say that because of God's grace in my life. Because I know this is not within me. Because if I'm left to my own devices, my own scheme, my own sin, I can tell you I would not be here today. But it's God's mercy, God's grace in my life. And in a room this big with this many people, I know that I'm not the only one. I know that if we passed the mic around here, we would be here for months, if not years, talking about God's goodness in our life and everything that he's done for you. Because we understand that God is good all the time and all the time. So we have experienced that ourselves firsthand. Because God is a God of reversals. He can reverse things quickly that appear 
to be irreversible. He can change things in your life that appear to not be able to be changed by your power. But God can. I'm reminded of Joseph's word in Genesis when he tells his brothers, the brothers who plotted to kill him, the brothers who ended up scheming to sell him into slavery, and God's grace and mercy is in Joseph's life to the point that he rises to the ranks of second in command in Egypt. And he finds himself with his brothers in front of him, asking for help. And in Genesis 50, he says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What you planned was evil. What you meant for evil God turned it into good. So let me show you as we walk through chapter 8 the, the reversals that God has his hand in through this. Esther chapter 8 verse 1, it says, That same day King Hesuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. King Hasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. See, in this we see an economic reversal. All that Haman owned now belonged to Esther, which was a lot. This man was up there. There was a lot that Haman have collected throughout the years. And now this is Queen Esther's. When God was ready to move and make a statement in the economic order, he can flip it. We go on Esther chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 2. It says, the king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. The king took his ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. We'll call this a political reversal. You see, the signet ring carried power, carried authority with it. This is the same ring that we see in uh, chapter 8, verse 10, when Haman makes this evil plan to eradicate the Jews. It's the king's ring that Haman uses to put this into place. So the ring carries authority, carries power, it carries the representation of the king in an official way. And now this king is given to Mordecai. He went from a dead man walking to now the second in command with this ring. So sometimes you might think that someone has the name, that someone has the money, that someone has the position over you, scheming evil for you and your life, 
but ultimately they don't have the final say in your life. God has that final say. God has that final say in your life and he will give it. When God, what God gives, God can take away. So there's that political reversal which leads to a legal reversal. Because again, Haman is gone, but the law from chapter three of eradicating the Jews is still in effect. And so Queen Esther in verse six says, for how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Esther asked the king, you got to do something. You, you have to change this law. You have to revoke it. The problem is the laws that uh, back then were irrevocable, okay, with the, with the Medes and the Persians. Once the king said so, it was there. You couldn't take it back. You couldn't change it. So what does the king do? So again, this new political shift leads to a new law that comes about from verse 11. It says, the king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and providential army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. So, so follow, follow along with me, okay? Haman's law back in Esther 3 gave people the right to go and kill the Jews. And there was a seal on it. It was done. But then they come up with a law that's signed by the king. He can't change the old law, so he creates a new law. And it gives the Jews the right to defend themselves against anyone who tries to kill them. But not only defend themselves against them, but also their wives, also their children, also their possessions. So put yourself in this situation. If you are a Persian operating on law number one, thinking that you can go to the Jews and kill them, and eradicate them. And now you hear about law number two. Where you can still do that. You can still go after the Jews and eradicate them. But they can now defend themselves. Kill you, your wife, and your children. And take your stuff. I would rethink law number one now. I would rethink moving on law number one because now law number two gives the Jews power to defend themselves. See, God has an override button that comes. That whatever it is that the enemy, that your enemies are planning, whatever the people that might rise against you, that want nothing but the worst for you. 
God will raise a standard against them. God will raise a standard for you to move on. It may not stop the evil from coming from you, coming for you, but it does give you the the ability to lean on God who will stand for you, that will fight for you, that will take care of your enemy for you. We also see an emotional reversal. See in chapter four, verse three, it says that when the law, law number one came about, it says that there was great mourning among the Jews, weeping and wailing. And as the second law is delivered in the same manner that the first law was delivered, look at what it says. Verse 16, and the Jews celebrated with gladness joy and honor in every providence and every city where the king's command and edict reach gladness and joy took place among the Jews there was a celebration and a holiday see God took the mourning and the crying and turned it into gladness and joy overnight there was crying one day and there was laughing the next Psalms 35 says, weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. You may be crying one day, weeping, in pain, wondering what's going on, wondering where God is, wondering why there's so much against you, and the very next day, God can give you joy and gladness. He can wipe every tear away when you are living and submitting to his timing and his will. When you are listening to his will and you're living according to it. And there's one last reversal. Last part of verse 17, it says, And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. In other words, many sinners got saved because there was a spiritual reversal. They saw that God, what, was, what he was doing for his people, and they said, I want some of that. So they became a Jew. In order to to become a Jew, you needed to come under the Jewish covenant. And to be under the Jewish covenant, you had to proclaim and you had to claim God as your own. So they wanted some of that. I know that you have gone through things in your life. Bad situations, things that have happened to your life that maybe you didn't have a say in. No one polled you and asked your vote before it happened. It just happened. And how we react to that speaks volumes to the people around us. 
Because how you perceive your circumstances and what's going on in your life and how you live your life, others are watching. Others are taking note. I've heard countless stories of tragedies happening or circumstances or people gossiping about you and and people not reacting the way that the world would want you to react. And people saying, there's something different about you. We're called to make others jealous of our God. That as we walk with God day in and day out, that our relationship with him changes our countenance, changes how we perceive the things that we go through. And as we do so, others will notice that and others will say, whatever you have, I want that. I want that in my life. I want the God that you have. Again, I wish I could tell you that come to God, life will be great. Come to God, you will not have any problems or pain in your life. Come to God and there'll be no lean years. Come to God and you'll have great employees or great bosses. Come to God, life will be rosy. But I can't say that. Scripture doesn't say that. But I can tell you that whatever is against you, understand that it does not have the last say. It does not have the last laugh in your life. Because the ultimate reversal, the ultimate card is Jesus. Because notice what Jesus says. In John chapter 16, verse 33, it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Other translations say, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Many of you in here can attest to the reversal that God has done in your life. Where as you were, as scripture says, spiritually dead. Dead in our sin, our transgression. But God saved you from that. Saved you from your circumstances, saved you from the world that you lived in, saved you from the family that you grew up, whatever it might be. But he saved you. And he gave you the ultimate reversal of life. Because God is a God of reversals. I told you about my life that my dad had left when I was two and a half years old. And growing up, I always wondered why. And I could never really come up for a reason. 
And so growing up, there was a lot of insecurities in my life. A lot of things that as a kid, you blame yourself. Man, maybe it was my fault. And I would see my friends and their moms and dads and their happy marriages and I would say, why can't I have that, God? Why? My mom met a man named Louis when I was nine. We didn't become a family until my freshman year in high school. But I remember in eighth grade, after church, living in our basement with my mom and sitting at our dining table. And I remember asking him about Jesus. And this man, who didn't have to love me, didn't have to care for me, shared the gospel with me. So as I look back, I know why. God was at work in my life. And I can tell you that God is at work in your life. You're not here by accident. Some of you need to know that there's hope, that there's joy in Jesus Christ. Maybe today would be the day that you tell God, I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of your grace. I have fallen short of your standard. Come save me. And for the Christian here, whatever God, whatever life is thrown at you, whatever your circumstances whatever you're going through at this very moment that maybe might be distracting you from God, would you just trust his timing and know that he is a God of divine reversals and he wants to reverse what's going on in your life.